Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2. And the passage this morning will be verses 10 to 13. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 to 13. And in the providence of God, we are looking at a section in Hebrews that deals with the incarnation of Christ. And it's right during Christmas. I didn't plan for this to happen, but I did pray for this to happen. And God in his mercy worked it out. Verse 10, for it's fitting for him for whom are all things and through him are all things and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Lord, as we again are in this word, the word that does not fail, the word that is always succeeding, it has been fulfilled or it will be fulfilled, this trustworthy word, the love of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. We come before you asking that this powerful word would do its work in our hearts for your glory, Lord. Amen. I'm not sure what happened with with Brett. He forgot an an announcement. I'm not sure why you failed to give this, Brett. But there is a second Christmas concert. There is a second Christmas concert. And on piano, we're going to have Leonard. Leonard, thank you for playing the piano. And then we have a new trio since the other Christmas concert. Abigail's not letting me sing. It's going to be Elias, Micah, and me are going to sing a trio. And it's going to be in July. So we have time to practice and get prepared. And we're going to have it downtown in Stillicum for an outreach. So a Christmas concert in July featuring Leonard and the Three Amigos. We'll be doing the concert. I'm sure it will be very interesting. Now, that is a joke. That is tongue-in-cheek. It is trying to be funny, one, to get your attention, but also the part about Christmas in July, I, I think, is something that we could do and actually, in a sense, should be doing. And I did talk to Abigail about this last week or two weeks ago, and we talked about how how appropriate and meaningful it could be, perhaps, if we did some sort of concert or some sort of outreach in July about Christmas. Because Christmas, at least, not not officially, that is, from God's word, but during Christmas, we celebrate the incarnation of Christ, the birth of Christ. And it could be a good teaching device to help people to realize that Christmas, Christ must, the worship of Christ, the, the incarnation of Christ is important, not just during December, but the incarnation of Christ is important year round and every single day. The songs that we sang this morning and last week, aren't they beautiful? Aren't they wonderful? And, and though we, we do talk about it and can joke about it, how many times have we 
sung away in the major in July. <laughs> we might think that's weird. That's odd. That's for December. No, that's all the time. We should be singing away in the manger or hark the herald angel sings. We should be always singing songs about the incarnation of Jesus. All, all the time. And when we look at the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is addressed to believers. Some were, were pressing forward in Christ, but they were being severely persecuted. There were others that professed Christ, and they were being tempted to fall away from the Lord. And there were others that perhaps were just right there on the, on the verge of apostatizing from the Lord. And it's in that context that the book of Hebrews is written, and chapter 2, uh, verses 5 through the end, is all about the incarnation of Christ, the incarnation of the Son of God. That is how the Spirit ministers to these believers in this church that were struggling to some degree in some way as He ministers to them that Jesus, the Son of God, became a full flesh and blood human. Verse 14 talks about flesh and blood, and he himself also partook of the same. And chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, talks about not drifting away from the Lord. Because if we drift away from the Lord, then we neglect our great salvation. And for these believers and professors in this church that this letter was written to, Remember, many of them most likely have been saved out of a, what's called a second temple Judaism. Out of a Judaism that no longer was truly a pure and right with God, but even involved this type of veneration, deification, glorification of angels. And they were being tempted to go back to that old religion. They had trusted Jesus, but things are not going well for them physically. Some of them have been put in prison. And we've said, what happens when you trust Jesus? Sometimes your life can go bad. You can be persecuted for your faith. These brothers and sisters in this church were being persecuted that way. Some may have just been professors and not possessing Jesus, and they were being tempted to let go of Christ and to drift away. And so the Spirit of God ministers to them by talking to them about that the Son of God, who is eternally God, took on human flesh. And so this is where we're at this morning. And we've said that since Jesus Christ is superior to extra-biblical tradition, focus, therefore, on Jesus so you don't drift away and go to hell. The Bible teaches that if a believer is a true believer, he's going to persevere, she's going to persevere all the way to the end. Do you remember 1 John 2.19? They went out from us because they never were of us. If they would have been of us, they would have remained. And to encourage professors, that includes us, to remain in Jesus the Spirit of God is focusing us on the incarnation of Christ. And we've come now to this fourth point, or the fourth adjustment focus, and we've said that that's focused on Jesus being fully human. Jesus is fully human for you. 
And we need to think about that all the time. We need to think about this a lot. And we'll look at it chapter 2, chapter 4, and even chapter 5, and some, some in, in chapter 12 as well. We need to consider, to think upon, and even to worship God and to worship Jesus that willingly, joyfully, he took on human flesh for you, for you. And we'll see that this morning. And so it's stated briefly in verse 9. Now in verses 10 all the way through 18, it's going to be beautifully elaborated on. But this morning, just two words I want us to get. Suitable and siblings. Suitable and siblings. Now, the next couple of weeks, I hope to have other S words, but I can't guarantee we're going to have S words But for the outline. But for this morning, as we look at this section 10 through 18, it's just, it's elaborate and it's beautiful, especially verses 10 to 13, we're going to look at in two words, suitable and siblings. That is, that Jesus becoming fully human for you was suitable, and it involves siblings. First, suitable. That is, this incarnational mission of Jesus was suitable. Look at the verse. Look at verse 10, and you can notice right away it has the word for. Verse 10 is going to explain and elaborate more on verse 9, especially so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Verses 10 through 18 is going to explain and elaborate and apply that. But note what it says right away, for it was fitting for him. Why state this? For it's fitting for him. The word fitting means suitable, it means appropriate, it means seemingly becoming, it it was right for God to do this. But why say this? Well, remember what we said and what we have said is that there was temptation from those that were Jews. They weren't Jews that were saved. They were part of more of basically a type of pagan Judaism that had left God. They were saying, you're worshiping a Savior that died on the cross. What does the book of Deuteronomy say? The person that dies on the cross is what? Cursed. And you're worshiping that one? And then the Romans would hear about your savior, your king. You said you won't follow, you won't bow down to Nero, but you bow down to a crucified savior? That is what? Weakness and folly. It's it's madness. And in the Roman and Greek and pagan theology, the idea that a, a god would willingly become weak and be tortured and die and, and bleed and, and be so humble and so righteous and people would reject him and spit upon him. To worship a god like that and, and for a god to be like that, that would be absolutely crazy. A crucified Messiah, praise God, that rose again, but a crucified Messiah, a a God that was humble and and meek and and, and gentle, that didn't fit the cultural paradigm. 
And I didn't even fit the paradigm of an angel, right? Michael, Gabriel, the, the cherubim, the, the seraphim. Don't you want to, you know, the angels and like in the book of Isaiah and, and elsewhere and like an angel or two angels killed a hundred thousand people. It's so mighty, so glorious. Yeah, the, the book of Daniel, Michael standing against Satan. Don't you want to worship something like that that is gloriously powerful and majestic? You're worshiping somebody that was tortured and had a spear puncture his side and a crown of thorns pressed into his head and that was whipped. Because it just said in verse 9, look at verse 9 at the end, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Okay. Because for it was fitting, it was suitable, it was actually beautiful, and it was appropriate for this to happen. And note, right after this statement, for it's fitting for him, he says basically, for this reason, through whom are all things, and through him are all things. It's almost like the Spirit of God is the perfect shepherd and is anticipating that these believers, knowing that they're being tempted to leave Jesus with this temptation that extra-religious tradition is better and that angels could be better, he's saying, no, it's suitable for this to happen. It was according to the will and the plan of who? Of the Creator, of God. That's what verse 10 is talking about. For whom are all things and through whom are all things. All things were created for his glory, Isaiah 43, 7. And they were made through him, by him. Again, we're getting a glimpse of the Trinity because in chapter 1 and verse 3 and even on down verses 10 through 13, it's Christ that is the creator. But yet also at the same time, the whole Trinity was involved in the creation. And in verse 10 here, it's talking about God the Father. That by the grace of God, verse 9, that's God the Father, He, Jesus, might taste death for everyone. For it's fitting for Him, that is God the Father, from whom are all things to whom all things are. And doing this to Jesus and sending Jesus in order that we could be saved. In a sense, that is what I'm saying that this verse is saying, verse 10, it's like John 3.16, but Hebrews style. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. So all the ones who are believing in him would not perish, but have eternal life. That's how the Apostle John states it. This is how the author of Hebrews states it in verse 10. God, from whom are all things and through whom are all things, did this for the many sons, for Christ. Basically, God had a profound purpose and plan, and so that's why it was suitable. It wasn't just Jesus happened to die. It was the plan and purpose and power of God for that to happen. But keep looking at verse 10, and he gives another reason why it's suitable. Why is it suitable? Why is it fitting? Why is it right? Why is it beautiful? Why is it becomingly for, for God the Son to take on human flesh and blood, to take on mortality, to take on finiteness, to be in a form that can be tortured and bleed and grow hungry and tired and, and die 
Why was it becoming? Why was it beautiful for that to happen? Well, look at verse 10. And bringing many sons to glory. This is why I said Jesus became, God the Son became fully human for you. It's suitable and it's right because he became fully human for you. For you, he did it. When it says bring many sons, the word sons or brothers is used and it's referring to the whole congregation. For all those that trust Jesus, men and women, boys and girls that trust Jesus are called the brethren are called sons. And know what it says, in bringing many sons. Many, many. How many people are going to heaven? Uh, A thousand? A hundred thousand? Think about all of those, even in the Old Testament, that had trusted Yahweh. How how many believers are are going to be in heaven? Is it going to be like 15? 17? A hundred thousand? A million? A hundred million? How many? It's going to be like the sand on the seashore. Yes, more are going to hell. Wide is the path to hell. But there are many, many people that are being saved and have been saved. And verse 10 is saying that God is the one that is bringing all those to what? To glory. It's suitable for God to take on human weakness in order to get you to a place of glory. It's fitting for God to take on weakness and mortality and finiteness, to be rejected, tortured, betrayed, to be crucified, to bleed and die in order to get you to glory. Could an angel do that? No. Could a prophet do all this? No. Jesus rose again from the dead, and verse 3 and 4 says he sits at the, chapter 1, says he sits at the right hand of God on high. He did this in order to bring all those that trust him to glory. What does this mean, to glory? There are some, I've read some paraphrases and some commentaries that paraphrase it like this, and bringing many sons unto the glory of God. That's That's a wrong paraphrase. This isn't about, here, this verse is not saying God did this in order to glorify himself. That is true. But that's not what this verse is saying. This verse is saying God did this to bring you to glory. And that means many different things. That means that, believers, when you die, you are going to a glorious place. And you yourself will be glorious. The Bible says if you trusted Jesus when you die, and then you go to heaven, that you will be glorious when you see your glorious king. Just briefly, let me remind you of what what we looked at at camp. Revelation chapter 22, Verses 1 through 5. I'm not going to read all those verses. Uh, Verse 3, Revelation 22, a place of glory. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bond servants will serve him, they will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. That is personal identity and relationship with Christ. And there will be no longer any night, 
and they will not have any need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Remember what we talked about? We sing the Hallelujah Chorus, right? And he will, and he will, and he will reign forever and ever. Right? We sing that. 100% true and biblical. But Revelation 22, verse 5 says, who else is going to reign with Christ forever and ever? You, if you've trusted him. This is in part what it means in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, and bringing many sons to glory, a glorious place with a glorious king and in a glorious position. Now, maybe you're like, oh, I don't know about that, Tom. You know, I'm not sure. I don't. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 12. This is what Paul prays. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified in you and you in him. What? You'll be glorified in Christ. The book of Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. Who will transform the body of our humble state. God the Son took on a body of humble state, which is what Philippians 2, 5 through 10 talks about. Who would transform the body of our humble state into a conformity with the body of his glory. On your own, read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 through 49. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 is saying it was suitable and right and beautiful and becomingly and awesome for God to take on weakness, for God to be willing to be tortured, betrayed, rejected, to be crucified. It was right for God the Son to do that because he did it to make you in several senses glorious. We partake of the glory of Christ forever and ever and ever and ever. In one sense, you could say Christmas is about the incarnation of Christ in order that he could live a perfect life, be tortured, be crucified, rise again, in order to make you glorious. Merry Christmas. What a great gift. God is going to make you, if you've trusted Jesus, glorious forever. This is what it says here in bringing many sons to glory. It's talking about a perfect place with the perfect Lord, and you yourself are going to be glorified. And then in verse 10, then right after that, he talks about how this itself happens. One of the main means to have this happen is what says to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. It was fitting for him to do this, and how he did this, one of the main means, is he was perfected, that is Christ, through sufferings. Now, in the Greek text, look at verse 10, look at the end, where it says, author of their salvation. In the Greek text, that's placed before to perfect. To perfect him, the author of salvation, through sufferings is not to get too technical, it's a prepositional phrase with an infinitive. But before that, you have the author of their salvation. And it's the word pioneer, the pioneer. Think of a, the pioneers back in the early West and, and the covered wagon blazing across the frontier. 
being attacked by Indians, by rattlesnakes, by, by whatever. They're, they're plowing their way. Think of Lewis and Clark coming to Washington and, and the Oregon coast. Trailblazers, pioneers. This is the idea of the author of their, of their salvation, is that Christ is the one that lived a perfect life. We could not and did not. By his actions, by his attitudes, by his words and his deeds, by resisting temptation 100% all the time, 24-7, he was able to be that innocent, sacrificial lamb. In that sense, he is the, the author, the pioneer, the trailblazer of our salvation. He went forward in front of us and did that which we can never do for ourselves, he did for us. That's why later in Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about fixing our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. Now what is really glorious is, is this. The means of the incarnation, in order to win us, in order to give us glory forever, and in a true sense, the incarnational mission of Christ is suitable because it was to make us glorious. The means of doing that is that Jesus got really nitty-gritty in, in the human flesh. In one sense, Jesus Christ was more human than you. But he got down into the nitty-gritty grime of the world, and he himself was very, very human. In fact, if you look at the end of verse 10, know what it says. Look at the words. To perfect, the author of their salvation, to perfect through sufferings. Not us it's talking about, but it's talking about Christ. The author of their salvation, Jesus Christ, was perfected by sufferings. What does that mean? That Christ was perfected through sufferings. Well, it doesn't mean that he was unflawed and then became flawed and then became again unflawed. It wasn't that he was perfect, became imperfect, and then became perfect again. That is not the idea. That would be a wrong view of this. But the words here are powerful. And I think we can and should think of it in this sense. Jesus, as it says in Philippians 2.5, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. How did he empty himself? He took on the, the form and the appearance of a slave and a real person. Isaiah 53. If you looked at Jesus, you wouldn't go... Like if Jesus was walking down the road and you were there in Bethlehem or the Sea of Galilee, you wouldn't go... Look, there's the Son of God. The only people that saw him and they immediately said that, the only entities that did that were who? Demons. <laughs> they knew who he was. But the average person, when they saw Jesus, even his brothers, when his earthly brothers saw him, didn't go, behold the Son of God. They said, there's the older brother, Jesus. They didn't, it appears from Scripture, they didn't really believe who he was until he appeared to them after his resurrection. What I am seeking to point out is that Jesus was fully human. Not that he lay aside his deity. He did not lay aside his deity. But he restricted the use of his deity. 
And we'll talk about this later in Hebrews 5. But it wasn't that Jesus came to earth and said, I'm going to show you my power. Zap, 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 zap. You're saved, you're saved, you're saved, you're saved, you're saved, you're saved. Save, 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 save. Hallelujah. I won. I'm going back to heaven. I'll see you in about 3,000 years. Bye. That's not what happened. Maybe if a man wrote the story, that's what would happen. But rather, God took on human flesh and became like you. And was tempted in all the ways that you're tempted. And was weak and fragile and mortal. He was fully God, but he did not, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did not, did not normally depend upon his own deity to preserve and to bring comfort to himself. After he was tempted, what happened? Right? He fasted. He was tempted. 40 days, 40 nights, he, he was fasted. Then he was tempted by Satan. He's tired, weary. What did he do? He snapped his fingers. Boom. Presto. No. What happened? The angels came and ministered to him. Jesus was so human that after fasting for 40 days and then being tempted by Satan, he needed external help. He was still fully God, still had all of his deity, but he, his normal practice and in incarnation was not relying upon that all the time. That's why he would pray and ask the Father to be doing some miracles through him. That's why the Spirit of God came upon him. This is what Christ did for you and I. Even, we'll see later in Hebrews 5, it talks about learning. Even, it wasn't since Christ took on humanity. And again, we'll look at it later in Hebrews 5. I don't want to take the time to go through it now. But just think about this. It, it seems from Scripture, it wasn't then when Jesus was maybe two years old. I know the whole Bible. And at two years old, Jesus was, Jesus was able to quote the whole Bible because he wrote it. It appears from Scripture that Jesus learned obedience in the sense of he had to read the Bible. He had to study the Bible. And he was 100% obedient to all that he read and all that, that he studied. He did not rely on his normal, in his normal life, did not rely upon 24-7 his deity to accomplish all of his activities. Right? Even his death. He could have come down the cross at any moment, right? And just... Annihilated everybody. He didn't do that. He willingly allowed himself to be betrayed, to suffer, and to die to that perfect, faithful high priest for you. This is what Jesus Christ did for us. Praise God. So when it says perfected through suffering, it's the idea that Jesus Christ, fully God, but was fully man, and in his humanity was 100% obedient as he trusted his father. That's why even in verse 13, it says, and again, I will put my trust in him. Christ did what you cannot do, and that is trust the father 24 100% every day, all the time. As a fully human person. 
and going into a place that rejected him. And he even made them. And even he was the Savior. But they rejected him and mocked him. And his disciples even fled from him. One denied him, another one betrayed him. So the idea of him being perfected through sufferings is that suffering proved he was the Messiah. Going through sufferings, not alone, but going through sufferings and always having the right attitude, the right faith, the right words, always being 100% obedient and honest and, and true, proved he was truly the Son of God, the Messiah. And he did this. Why? Well, one of the reasons was to give you glory. To give you glory and to make you glorious. So just two thoughts as we wrap up this first point. Suitable. Just two brief points. Verse 18 says he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And we'll get more into this later. But he never gave up. He never gave in to sin and temptations. So who do we go to? What refuge do we do we hide in when we're tempted? We hide in Jesus. We hide in Christ. When I, when I look at myself, and I'm saying this to describe myself, my temptation can be, I'm reformed, and my soteriology, right? That, that, that's really good. I do homeschool. In fact, we do two homeschools. We do uh, CC and we do co-op. Emmanuel Co-op, and then we have this other one, yeah, Classic Conversations. We do two co-op, two homeschools. We're really spiritual. I'm a pastor. I know Greek and Hebrew somewhat. I was a missionary. Those are my badges that I can be tempted to trust in. What badges are you tempted to trust in? The reality is that none of us were fully God, had eternal glory, chose not to use that and to live a, a perfect life in obedience to the Father and His Word. We didn't do that. We couldn't do that. But that's what Jesus did, proving that He was truly the Son of God. And He did that to make you glorious. That's what verse 10 says. And bringing, God does it, God does it. Look at the middle of verse 10. And bringing many sons to glory. You can't carry yourself. You can't bring yourself. God brings you. That's why we say, by grace alone. The second little point of application is, give glory to God. Give glory to God. That, that God would, me a sinner, a rebel. Even as a believer, I, I still sin. And yet God says he wants to in a sense, make me glorious. That's what Philippians 3, 20 and 21 say. And Second Thessalonians 1, 12. Revelation 22, 5. That I would reign with him forever and ever. <laughs> what? Is that suitable? <laughs> it's not necessarily something I deserve, but it's the grace and the glory of God to do that. So what should your and my response be to that? I think it should be glory! And I, I really mean that. Psalm 47.1 says what? Shout to the Lord. I think some of you are just like fuddy-duddies, stuck in the mud. Do you know when you get to heaven, I think you're going to be loud. I, I think you might be loud. Shout to the Lord. What, what does the Hebrew mean in Psalm 47.1? Thank you. Psalm 47.1, when it says shout. 
Maybe you would say, well, that's too charismatic. Maybe you need to become a little bit biblically charismatic. Shout to the Lord. You should say, glory! Glory to God! Glory to God, it says right here in verse 10. You trust Jesus, he's going to make you glorious and place you in a glorious place. What is your response to that? We should all be jumping around and running. Lord, thank you, thank you. Glory to God, glory to God, glory to God. You know, all the terrible stuff that's going on in the world. I, I pray for the world and I pray for peace. I pray for their salvation that they could partake in the glory of God. This isn't our home. We are truly pilgrims. And so we should have this in our heart, this glory to God. And this is suitable, giving glory to God, because he promises if you've trusted Jesus, he's going to give you glory. A glorious place with a glorious person, and you yourself will be in some way like that glorious king, King Jesus. So, all that to say, don't allow yourself to drift away from Jesus, because your destiny is glorious. If you trust him, glorious. Now, what's incredible, I mean, right, right there enough is enough for me. Glory to God. He's going to give me glory. That's awesome. But why? Well, God is full of grace. And he has said to you, ladies that have trusted Jesus, you are my sister. What? You ladies that have trusted Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God, the one by whom God the Father made the world, says to all of you ladies that have trusted Jesus, you're my sister. I love you. You're my sister. All you men that have trusted Jesus, he says, I I do all this for you. Do you know why? Because you're my brother. Now, I understand I'm a saved sinner. uh, You can talk to my family. I I sin. I'm saved, but I'm a sinner. I understand that. I understand that I'm a sheep. I am a sheep. I'm kind of dumb sometimes. And that Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. Thank you, Lord. But it's hard for me to understand that I am also a sibling. You're a saved sinner. You're a saint. You're a sheep of God. But you're also, you're a sibling of Jesus. Did you know that? That if you are in Christ, if you've trusted Jesus, when you see Jesus... We look here in this text, very likely he'll say to you, you're my brother. You're my sister. What? I'll be like, what? What are you talking about? That can't be true. You're the king of glory. True, Tom. It's true. And yes, I accept your worship, but I'm also your brother. What? That's what this passage says in verses 11 to 13. It was suitable... For the Son of God, this is what verse 11 through 13 is saying, it was suitable for the Son of God to take on human, weak, finite flesh and die on the cross because he looks at all those that trust him as his family, as his brothers and sisters. And that way, it was fitting, it was right, it was true, it was seemingly it was becoming for, in a true, respectful way for our elder brother, for our big brother to die for us. Jesus looks at us and he calls us his brethren, his brothers and sisters. And he states it and then he's going to support it. Look at verse 11 and he states it. You can see in the text. 
for both he and sanctifies, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. And it says, really, are all from one. So God, the one that makes people holy, the one that saves them, the one that separates them, that's what the word sanctifies mean, and then the one that progressively sanctifies them. So it's the idea, the one that God saves and he helps them to become more and more like Jesus. They're all from one Father. And in a sense, even Jesus was right, set apart by God the Father for a special mission. For God so loved the world that he gave, he sent his only begotten Son. Jesus was sent and on earth, he sought to do all the will of God, all the, the his Father, 24-7. And he proved that he was the perfect Son of God by always obeying God the Father. In that sense, he was set apart. In that sense, sanctified. Well, all of them are from one. From one. And then look at the end of verse 11. For which reason he is not ashamed. He's not embarrassed to call them Brethren. That is before God the Father, Satan, may come up before God and may talk about you ladies or you men and say, you know, Tom, he's so unworthy. He sins all the time. Did you see when he got angry at his son? Did you see when he said that unkind word to his wife? Did you see when he ignored his daughter? And he says he's a Christian. And Jesus would say, he's mine. He's my brother. He's my sheep. But he's also my brother. Be gone, Satan. That's what this verse is saying. It's saying he's not embarrassed. Have you ever been to somebody and maybe they announce who you are, you say who you are, maybe a party or or a get-together, and either a relative or a friend, somebody is kind of embarrassed of you? Have you ever had a friend or a relative be embarrassed of you? A parent? Or maybe you're a parent and you're embarrassed of your, uh, by your kids. And one way or another, we have been embarrassed by somebody, whether good or bad. We've been embarrassed and ashamed of some people that we know and love. But here in this verse, in verse 11, it says, He is not ashamed to call them brethren. He is not embarrassed to look at you sisters and say, That lady, she's mine and she's my sister. To God the Father, before all the angels, fallen and unfallen, elected and unelect, that woman belongs to me, and she's my sister. He belongs to me. He's my brother. I love him. He's part of my family. This is really incredible. And again, it's by the grace of God. You can see that in verse 9. By the grace of God. What would happen if... You got a, a telephone call, maybe not even a call, maybe somebody knocked at your door. And you think it's somebody selling stuff. You open the door, there's a TV crew there. You know, big lights, cameras. Have you ever had a TV camera on you? You know, all, all these lights and all these reporters and everybody's there. And you're like, oh my word, what's, what's going on? And they say, it's good news, good news. We've just found out that you're part of the royal family. What would your response be? You're part of the royal family. The queen died. 
but actually we found out that you're one of the long-lost brothers or long-lost sister. And so part of the whole kingdom of England and Great Britain is yours. What would you do? Then, I bet you, you would shout glory. I bet you would. Maybe. Maybe I would. Well, if you had to pick royal family or a sibling of Jesus, which would you pick? Maybe you don't like England. Maybe you don't want to be part of the royal family. With all respect, maybe you would be like, yeah, I, I don't care about the king of England. The queen of England means nothing to me. Well, what if it was Bill Gates? What if it was found out? Maybe the, you get a knock on your door, you open up the door, and it's Bill Gates. And he says, you know, I found out that, that actually you're my brother. You're my sister. Maybe you'd be like, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, no, thank you. Well, maybe if it was Elon Musk, you know, that he just launched a, a Japanese rocket to the moon. Yeah. Dark side of the moon. They're going to try to find water. What if he knocked on your door? And I think now he has something like $43 billion, something like that. What if he knocked on the door and all these TV cameras are there and he was there and he said, I just found out you're my brother, you're my sister. All that I have is also yours. I bet you that we would be like, glory, jump up and down. Yay! But if he had to pick Elon Musk's fortune or Jesus Christ being his sibling, which would you pick? Which is better? What if you got all the kings and queens and all the resources of the world from day one and you had to pick between all the resources and privileges of the world or you can be a sibling of Jesus Christ, which would you pick? Which is better? And we would say, of course, and I think all of us would say, far better to be a sibling of Jesus Christ. Infinitely more so. Because all those wealth, all their prestige, even, even perfect health in this life is all for nothing if you don't have Jesus as your Savior, Lord, and King. If you know Jesus, he's not ashamed to call you brethren. And everybody will all bow down our knees before Jesus. And when we do that, this text is saying, he'll say... There will be a relationship, yes, saint, saved sinner, sheep, subject to the king, and also sibling, a brother or sister of Jesus. And then he supports it, and he supports it by quoting from Psalm 22 and from Isaiah 8. And in Psalm 22, you see this in verse 12, that's the messianic psalm, right? It's a messianic psalm. And it's about the suffering Messiah. David is writing about himself, but also about the future coming Christ. And he says, and it's pointing to what Christ will say, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. Parallel to this, in the midst of the congregation. And the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, uses the same word for church, ecclesia, in the midst of the church, in the midst of the assembly, I will sing your praise. The idea of verse 12 that Hebrews is saying is that the Messiah, that crucified Messiah, the suffering Messiah, is standing with his brothers and sisters praising the Father. 
one way that God the Son, that Jesus Christ looks at you and I as that we are part of his congregation and he is standing with us praising God the Father. And that's even what he did with who? With his disciples. And then in fact, when he talks in verse 13, he's quoting from Isaiah 8, verses 7 through 18. And the book of Isaiah is basically about judgment, the first third, and then a few chapters about history, and then the next third or next half is about salvation. But this verse, 17 and 18 of Isaiah chapter 8, that verse 13 of Hebrews is quoting, Isaiah had prophesied, he had preached, the king and the people had rejected him. So Isaiah takes the scroll of the prophecies, rolls them up, and gives him to his true followers the true followers of God. And then he responds by saying, Isaiah does, I will put my trust in him. I will put my trust in God. And behold, then he says, I and the children whom God has given me. His children's name were a remains and basically uh, plundering, pulling from people that which they have, almost in a sense of salvation and blessing and, and judgment. And those were the basic names of his two children. Verse 13 is basically saying that Isaiah was going through a a difficult time. He preached the word. And ultimately, what happened to Isaiah? Did they receive his word? No. Eventually, he was martyred. They did not receive Isaiah's word. When Isaiah was going through a difficult time, he says, I will put my trust in whom? God and Yahweh. And then again, he says... I will do this, this is Isaiah saying, and the children that you have given me, we together would do this. That is, it seems that verse 13 is parallel to verse 12, saying that the Messiah, the the Son of God that took on human flesh, is identifying with us, with his people, saying that we are one family, and he, being the trailblazer, being the pioneer, fulfilled his mission, 100% successful mission, obeying the Father, trusting the Father, like we could never do or would never do. That's why verse 13 says, I will put my trust in him. Where you and I, in other words, failed to trust God, the Father, Jesus Christ always trusted his Father without fail, always. And that's why he can come to the aid of those who are tempted. Christ, in verse 12 and 13, is identifying with us, so much so that he can say, you are my brethren, I stand with you and the assembly of the congregation, and I also trusted my Father. So when we worship Jesus, when when we pray to Jesus, when we ask him for help, it's not just that he's a far-off deity sitting on a throne. He was here, flesh and blood, more tempted than you were, but always succeeded and obeyed the word and God the Father always. So you can listen to him and trust him and follow him because he succeeded. And he calls you his brother or his sister in Christ. So believers, no matter what you've done, even if you've slipped away somewhat from from God and from Christ, He calls you his brother or his sister. Not because you're worthy. There's nobody 
here that is worthy for Christ to say, you're mine, you're my brother, or you're my sister. Not one of us is worthy. It's by the grace of God, by the kindness of God, by his faithful life and perfect death, that he might taste death for everyone. So this morning, I think God is calling us to smash our despair. Christmas can be a sad time. It can be a difficult time. A lot of expectations. Past Christmases may have been difficult. A lot of family issues. It could be very sad. But pause and take time and to consider that the greatest gift that you could ever have would be for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the, the, the King of glory, to say, you're my brother. You're my sister. I love you. I'm with you. You're not alone. Now, one believer here is alone. At times, we might feel alone, but you feel alone, but you're not alone. Christ is with you, and he says that you're his brother or you're his sister if you're in Jesus. That is simply incredible. I try to get my hair cut once a month, and... The guy that cuts my hair, his name is Jose. The guy that brings us food and and books and things. And so I'll ask him, how much is my haircut? And he'll say, $3. So I'll reach into my wallet and take out $3 to give it to him. And he'll look at me and smile. I didn't say $3. Yes, you did. I heard it clearly. No, I said $3. F-R-E-E. It's free. Free. It's hard, in a sense, for me to accept that. Free haircuts. I haven't paid for one, I don't know, I've had maybe 30 haircuts from him now. He's never paid for them. I mean, I've never paid for them. Free. Free. Free dollars. And it makes me think of Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's free. And that's the gift of eternal life. And eternal life doesn't mean just a long life, but it means a glorious life. Glorious life. God in Christ considers you out of his free love and grace to be his sibling and gives you a glorious life for free. For free. It cost him everything, in a sense, right, his life, but he gives it to you for free. So brothers and sisters, keep enjoying this gift and seek to always be thinking about the humble mission of the incarnation taking on flesh and blood of Jesus Christ and give him glory because he seeks to make you glorious. And he will succeed. Nothing can stop God from fulfilling his promise and his plans. He that began a good work in you will what? He will perfect it. And then secondly, if you don't know Christ, why not? Why wouldn't you trust Jesus Christ? It says here he wants to bring you to glory. And if you trust him, one day he will make you absolutely glorious. And when you trust him, he'll look at you and he'll say, you're my brother and you're my sister. 
those are mind-shattering words of such a magnitude that it's almost unbelievable for me to think that Jesus would look at me and say, you're my brother. What? But that's what this text is saying. So that we don't drift away, so that we don't fall away from God, we need to always deliberately, diligently be focusing on that God, the Son, took on human flesh for you. Lord, we thank you for this word. We pray that we would live in light of, in a sense, Christmas, the incarnation of God the Son. We live in light of that and have our thoughts and our Christianity and our happiness and our joy shaped by these sublime truths, Lord, by these beautiful, eternally glorious truths. May those frame the culture of our mind and not social media, Lord, but your word. We give you praise and we give you the glory. Amen.